Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, part two of an ongoing series on false flags, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Did FDR let it happen in order to get America involved in World War II? So we, we come to December 7th, 91, the day that will live in infamy, Roosevelt said. But they knew this was coming. They knew it was coming, and they let it happen. As, as my research told me, they needed Japan to attack us, and Pearl Harbor was the bait. This podcast is brought to you by Reverse Speech Radio. Reverse Speech Radio, the only podcast in the world committed to bringing you the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, using the exact same technology as the CIA. They know because they trained them. Join host Christian Dicadure and David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech, every week and hear never-before-heard reversals, revealing the hidden truth. Catch politicians lying, climb inside the head of serial killers, even hear EVPs played in reverse. Who's lying? Who's telling the truth? All will be revealed on Reverse Speech Radio. New episodes drop every Thursday. Listen and subscribe at reversespeechradio.libson.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Clint Lacey, the author of A Beginner's Guide to False Flags, is standing by for part two of my ongoing series on false flags. Well, what a week I had on the road with my boys traveling to Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, and finally Cleveland. We saw some great ball games. We really fell in love with all three cities, beautiful cities. We got to see a little bit of West Virginia and visit the Moundsville State Penitentiary, reportedly one of the most haunted locations in America, and the Grave Creek Mound, right across from the State Pen, The mound was supposedly constructed by the Adena people sometime around 1000 BC. Some say the Adena were a race of giants. And a special thanks to Mark Eddy, who was kind enough to show us around Moundsville. Mark is a great friend of this podcast. He's a publicist who sends some amazing guests my way. Thank you, Mark. A PNC Park in Pittsburgh was absolutely amazing. There was a great fireworks show after the game. And Cleveland, we got to visit the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. What a thrill that was. And of course, see another great ball game at another beautiful ballpark, Progressive Field. And I also got to hang out with my pal, Jim Harold from the Paranormal Podcast and Campfire. He's a resident of Cleveland. Uh, next year, our quest to see games in all 30 ballparks continues when we head to New York to see the Mets, Yankees, and then on to Boston and Philly. In part two of my False Flag series, we look at World Wars I, II, and the Korean conflict. Clint Lacey is a lifelong resident of Missouri. He resides in the eastern Ozarks foothills of southeast Missouri. He's an independent writer who's been published in both mainstream and independent newspapers and magazines. 
In 2015, he released his first book, Blood in the Ozarks, Union War Crimes Against Southern Sympathizers and Civilians in Occupied Missouri. His latest book is The Beginner's Guide to False Flags. Clint Lacey, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me back, Richard. This is part two of an ongoing series on false flags. Today, we're going to start with World War I and the sinking of the Lusitania. Now, this was a, a British passenger steamship. It was sunk by German U-boats. And this is one of the reasons that the United States supposedly sort of got dragged into World War I. They, uh, they resisted. So how do you approach the sinking of the Lusitania in A Beginner's Guide to False Flags? Do you believe that the, the British wanted the Germans to sink the Lusitania in order to bring the Americans in? Yeah, a matter of fact, it was the same uh, gentleman from Britain that wanted us in World War II, and that was Winston Churchill. Uh, he had a high-ranking position in the Navy, and he wanted the United States' help, and Woodrow Wilson, he made a promise that he wasn't going to send our boys over there, and he didn't want to. So when the Germans sunk this ship, it, you know, there was cries for revenge and uh, just typical reaction when a, a, a country's people are on board a, a ship or a plane or something that's attacked. There was 120 Americans on board, and I think they lost 1,100 people, 120 Americans. A horrible, horrible attack and a horrible loss of, of innocent life, passengers, citizens, not, not, um, not armed participants in the conflict. Yeah, that's, that's true. The big thing behind it, though, was that the war cry was these were just innocent civilians. There was no military uh, material on this ship. Except there was ah uh, an investigation in 2008 says an article appeared in the December 2008 Daily Mail newspaper confirms that the Lusitania was in fact transporting weapons and ammunition. Its article reports that divers have revealed a dark secret about the cargo carried by the Lusitania, uh, Lusitania on its final journey in May 1915. Munitions they found in the hold suggest that the Germans had been right all along in claiming the ship was carrying uh, war materials and was a legitimate military target. It continues the disaster was used to whip up an anti-German anger, especially in the U.S., where 128 of uh, the 1,198 victims uh, the article also notes Americans were falsely informed that German children were given a day off school in order to celebrate the event. So how would the Germans have known if it wasn't discovered by investigation until nearly 100 years after the fact? This occurred in 1915, and you said 2008 uh, yeah. this was discovered. How did the Germans know that there were munitions aboard? Uh, well, just like uh, the British had spies watching Germany, the Germans had spies watching Great Britain and America. And they, in fact, some research I came across that they tried to put a warning in New York's newspapers urging people not to travel by ship. And the U.S. government told these newspapers not to print it. So the, the German embassy actually tried to warn Americans not to travel on the Lusitania, but, That's but the newspapers refused to publish it. On whose orders, uh, do you suppose? The, government, uh, the U.S. government. So they were looking for an excuse to get in as well. Yes. So Churchill and Wood Woodrow Wilson were scheming together um, on this, or? It was mainly Churchill. Uh, 
you know, a, a U.S. setting president, even though they're president, they still can't trust most of the people around them. Just like right now, Trump has John Bolton in his cabinet. And in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, I think John Bolton's a warmonger and I don't trust him. He is certainly and a bit of a hawk. Month, There's no question. Had, He's a bit of a hawk. Yes. No question. And uh, there's been two separate incidents in the Middle East now with oil tankers. And the whole thing just reeks of me like a false flag because one thing that keeps coming, repeating itself in these events, it seems like there's always a ship involved in it. Well, not always, but in many of them there are. And it's, it's almost like bait dangling out there for somebody to take it. And once they do, then we pounce. And it's always been the same story as as we said in part one. We're not going to want to fire the first shot. We're going to want somebody else to do that. This latest incident with the, uh, I believe it was a Japanese tanker, if I'm not mistaken, oil tanker. The U.S. military released footage of what it said was Iranians either placing a mine or taking a mine off of that boat. But the thing is, with our technology, why do they produce such a grainy video where you can't hardly tell who's who or or what exactly is going on, it's really suspicious to me. Right. Getting back to the Lusitania for a moment, though, I would imagine the last thing the Germans wanted, just as in the Second World War, the last thing the Germans wanted was for the Americans to come on board, even though they knew through their intelligence that there were munitions on board the Lusitania. It must have been a difficult decision for the Germans. They were Did they feel they were damned if they did and damned if they don't? I mean, wouldn't it have made more sense, okay, with those munitions... Had they gotten through, would they have changed the outcome of the war? Couldn't they have looked the other way rather than provoking the Americans getting into the war? It, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, if they could prevent the munitions from reaching Great Britain, then Britain would be much less of a threat and they would only be fighting France. And really, if the United States government knew about this uh, war munitions on board, and if they indeed told the newspaper not to pr- uh, print the warnings... Uh, that the Germans wanted to print, you know, do not travel to England or Europe by boat, there were they would not have been any Americans on this ship. So if the Lusitania is seen as a provocation for getting the United States into the war in 1915, why did it take them almost two years to actually get into the war? Uh, I would say because Woodrow Wilson did not, he knew the will of the American people, the Americans did not want this war. It was none of our business is what a majority of people thought. But the whole time you had Winston Churchill lobbying behind the scenes, much like he did during the Second World War. So the United States just finally, they finally gave in. Were there additional provocations in your mind? Were there other civilian casualties as a result of German U-boats later on after the Lusitania? Not that I found. Uh, that was the big one anyway. And, and they, let's face it, they, they got as much mileage out of that as they could. So was it sufficient to turn popular opinion around to support a war, even two years later? It was sufficient to turn enough public opinion around, yes. But, and like I said at the beginning of this interview, whenever you have Americans uh, die in any kind of attack, then, uh, you know, uh, Americans want revenge. We want revenge. And if you don't know any better and you don't understand what's going on, then it looks like these evil people did this to us and we need to just take them out. So, as you say, history repeats itself. In the Second World War, again, we had the United States. The doctrine was splendid isolation. And in fact, if memory uh, serves, Roosevelt campaigned on keeping the United States out of the war. Correct? 
Yes, that's absolutely correct. He said he wasn't going to send our boys to fight a, a war in another country. But he was back-channeling with Winston Churchill once again. And Churchill was basically begging us to get into this war and uh, to, get, to get elected. Uh, Roosevelt campaigned on uh, isolationism. But what was going on in the background is they couldn't t- get Germany to make the same mistake they did in the First World War. They weren't taking any bait, so they started focusing on Japan since, uh, you know, Germany, Japan, and, and Italy were the Axis powers. And they started putting heavy sanctions on Japan on oil and just things that they needed, kind of strangling them economically. And it wasn't because they thought Japan was evil. It was because they needed Japan to attack us. Now, it, it, I myself, my grandfather fought in World War II. He fought in Germany, though. But uh, I have relatives that, that fought in the uh, Asian theater. I'm not dishonoring them any i'm not dishonoring any veterans it's just you know when a soldier is told to go to war they have to go to war not just the veterans that got duped in this it's the american people and so we we come to december 7th 91 the day that will live in infamy roosevelt said but they knew this was coming they knew it was coming and they let it happen as as my research told me they needed japan to attack us and pearl harbor was the bait so the the argument here is that the japanese had no choice because they were being squeezed economically there was an oil embargo let me just back up when you said it wasn't that they perceived japan as evil but when you look at the way that Japan attacked Manchuria, they were ruthless. They were just, I have to say, they were an evil empire. Now, you can argue that the United States, they looked the other way or they let it happen. They were glad it happened when it came to Pearl Harbor. But but no question, I think, fighting the Imperial Japanese Army, I, I'd have to consider that a just war, wouldn't you? Depends on how you look at it. I mean, yeah, I, I've, I've read stories about Japan and... Uh, I got to tell you, yeah, they, they did some really, really harsh things, especially in China. Yes. Where, uh, you know, they used uh, Chinese civilians for bayonet practice. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I cannot remember where it was at, but I read a book one time where some Japanese officers actually cut, like, the liver or other body organs out of POWs, American POWs, and would pass it around and nibble on it because they felt like it gave them power. So yeah, that's evil, but who put us there? Who put us in that position for them to attack us? Right, right. I was gonna read something here. Uh, It said, uh, we talked about this just a second ago. It said, Roosevelt stated repeatedly in 1940 campaign speeches that he would not send American boys to fight in a foreign war. This was an outright lie because privately he desperately wanted America involved in a conflict. An article in the December 7, 2016 issue of the New American Magazine explains that while Roosevelt was publicly declaring he wanted to stay out of the war, privately the president planned the opposite. Roosevelt dispatched his close advisor, Harry Hopkins, to meet uh, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill in January 1941. Hopkins told Churchill the president is determined that we, the United States and England, shall win the war together. Make no mistake about it. He has sent me here to tell you that at all costs and by all means, he will carry you through no matter what happens to him. There's nothing he will not do so far as he has a human uh, power. And some of the things uh, that was listed, uh, see, they tried the same, the same tactics with Germany, too, but they just wouldn't take the bait. Uh, provoking Germany 
by freezing its assets, providing 50 warships to uh, Britain, depth-charging U-boats, German submarines. Despite all this, the Germans would not retaliate, largely due to the fact of America's entry into World War One and how they turned the tide by its entry. Unsuccessful in his attempt to go Germany into attacking America, Roosevelt decided to shift his focus toward provoking Japan. Best described with an excerpt from The New American, while no one can excuse Japan's belligerence in those days, it's also true that our government provoked that country in various ways, freezing her assets in America, closing the Panama Canal to her shipping, progressively halting vital exports to Japan until we finally joined Britain in an all-out embargo, sending a hostile note to the Japanese ambassador implying military threats if Tokyo did not alter its specific policies. And on November 26, just 11 days before the Japanese attack, delivering an ultimatum that demanded prerequisites to resume trade that Japan withdraw all troops from China and Indochina and, in effect, abrogate her Triparty Treaty with Germany and Italy. After meeting with President Roosevelt on October 16, 1941, Secretary of War Henry Stimson wrote in his diary, We face the delicate question of the diplomatic fencing to be done so as to be sure Japan is put into the wrong and makes the first bad move, overt move. On November 25th, the day before the ultimatum was sent to Japan's ambassadors, Stimson wrote in his diary, the question was, how should we maneuver them, the Japanese, into positioning of firing the first shot? The bait offered Japan was our Pacific Fleet. Using the Pacific Fleet stationed at Hawaii worked, and Roosevelt knew about the impending Japanese attack three days before it was carried out. A 2011 article published in U.S. News and World Report reveals three days before the December 7, 1941 Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt was warned in a memo from Naval Intelligence that Tokyo's military and spy network was focused on Hawaii. The other thing that's curious is the fleet in Pearl Harbor. Most of the uh, the aircraft carriers were not present. What vessels were there and were they perceived as expendable? Well, it would have been necessary, absolutely necessary to have the carriers. I mean, that was just a given because that was the kind of war that was going to be fought in the Pacific. Uh, But the ships that were uh, attacked and uh, sunk and destroyed, damaged, whatever you want to call it, they were mostly destroyers and uh, ships that support the fleet. And many of them uh, actually were salvageable. Uh, A number of those vessels, aside, of course, from the USS Arizona, which remains at the bottom of the uh, the harbor and remains a, uh, a grave, many of those ships that were attacked, they were salvaged and actually returned to active service, as I recall. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say it's been suggested by some historians uh, that that knew Roosevelt that, yes, they knew it was coming, but they didn't, they couldn't have imagined how severe that attack would have been. They wanted Japan to fire the first shot, but they didn't, they certainly didn't want to see this kind of devastation and the loss of life. How do you respond to that? I kind of find that hard to believe, actually. They knew what Japan was capable of. And you have to remember that the main focus of getting the United States into World War II was to help Britain fight Germany. 
So, you know, it's possible that the people that were in on this scheming were arrogant enough to think that Japan couldn't put something together like this. But uh, at the same time, you have to you have to look at it through clear eyes and and admit that Japan was very capable of doing this. Still no guarantee that the United States would then go to war with Germany. From what I've read, actually, I, I have to say that, yeah, they were intended on going to war with Germany because, uh, as we stated earlier, they had, had tried the same tactics with Germany as they did with Japan, and and Germany just was not going to go for the bait this time. They just wouldn't do it. So, And you have to remember that Germany and Italy and Japan were in an alliance together. So technically, if Japan attacked us, then we're at war with Japan. And if we're at war with Japan, guess what? We're at war with Germany and Italy, too. Would you concur that ultimately, though, the United States getting into the war was was a good thing if it uh, meant vanquishing the Nazis? Well, here's the deal on that. And I'll just read you a little bit what I have here. President Franklin D. Roosevelt finally got what he desired, which was an American presence in World War II. Despite promising on the campaign trail in 1940 that no American boys would be sent to fight in a foreign war, 407,316 American servicemen were killed and 671,278 were wounded. So there's a million killed and wounded right there. And you might say, well, okay, well, we knocked out Germany and Japan. That's true. But said America's entrance into World War II had long-lasting consequences after the war ended. American aviation legend and America First advocate Charles Lindbergh wrote, In order to defeat Germany and Japan, we supported the still greater menace of Russia and China, which now confront us in a nuclear weapon era. The British Empire has broken down with great suffering, bloodshed, and confusion. France has had to give up her major colonies and turn into a mild dictatorship herself and much of the Western culture was destroyed. Meanwhile, the Soviets have dropped their Iron Curtain to screen off Eastern Europe. Antagonistic uh, Chinese government threatens Asia. More than a generation after the war's end, our occupying army still must occupy. The world has not been made safe for democracy and freedom. On the contrary, our own system of democratic government is being challenged by the greatest of dangers to any government, internal coordinating of unrest. It is alarmingly possible that World War II marks the beginning of the breakdown of Western civilization. So we got rid of Germany and Japan, but I would say our greatest threat today is China. True, yes, they are an adversary. There's no question about that. So then had we stayed out of the Second World War, who would have been there to check to control Hitler? They very well could have conquered not only all of Europe, much of Africa, Great Britain. There wouldn't have been much of a Western civilization to preserve. I think Russia would have ultimately taken him out because Russia was just too big. And uh, I believe it was Churchill. It was either Churchill or Patton. I can't remember. But after the war, they made the comment of, uh, we stuck the wrong pig. I think that was Patton. So the Soviet Union was such a menace after the war. Patton wanted to continue to fight, right? He wanted to, I remember that from the George C. Scott uh, portrayal. I don't know how accurate that is. Yes. But, but he, they had to meet with the Soviets and they had this celebra- celebratory dinner and uh, Patton was not happy to be there. He wanted he wanted to continue to fight the Russians. But had the Russians been allowed to, you, might, you may be right, the, the Russians, the Germans had run out of oil, they were in trouble. But had the Russians 
been allowed to roll into Germany unfettered, they might have taken over the entire European continent. I mean, the Iron Curtain was bad, but at least we had a Western Europe. We had a Western Germany and a France and a free Italy and England. I mean, the Cold War would have been far different had the Americans not entered the war and at least stopped the Soviets in Berlin. That's true, yeah. too. But Hitler took out a lot of the Soviets. Would they have been able to? I don't know. But we do know this. We do know that Hitler had a pact with Stalin. When Hitler went into Poland, Hitler and Stalin divided up Poland. Yes, yes. And they had an alliance. And what was going on was Churchill was back-channeling Stalin, you know, basically saying, hey, you need to join our team. And he was like, no, I've made this alliance with these people. Well, and Stalin and Hitler were both paranoid. And that's kind of what broke down the, uh, the alliance between the two because the Soviet Union was putting troops into some Baltic republics that they really weren't supposed to be putting them into on the alliance. And that led Hitler to believe he, that uh, Stalin was massing his army on the borders to invade him. So right. Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, which was probably the reason, the main reason he lost the war. Yes, he didn't learn from Napoleon, did he? <laughs> you never invade Mother Russia in the winter. However, I certainly believe that the Second World War was a, a just war. Regardless of that, the entree of the United States into the Second World War through false provocation, it's, you know, I think there's a solid argument to be made that that was the case. They were, again, fighting public opinion. They needed to get into the war. I would argue they, they, they definitely had to get into that war. And then the question is, well, were the casualties that were suffered at Pearl Harbor, was that worth it? That's really what it comes down to. I mean, was it worth sacrificing those soldiers in order to create a pretext to get into the war? Well, uh, that's a good question because most of it's the European Union now, and they're very globalist, and they want to be the head of a global power. You know, Trump's against this. And the people of England voted in 2016 to get out of the European Union. And what happened? They had an election, and, and one uh, candidate dropped out. And instead of picking the next candidate, they chose Theresa May, who did nothing but drag her feet and try and get an exit plan, which would still leave England largely under the European Union's control. So there's no doubt in my mind, Theresa May was a reiner, so to speak. And uh, the people spoke. There was never anything that said that, OK, we're going to vote to get out of the European Union and we got to turn it over to Parliament. No, the vote was to get out of the European Union. So we still have control problems. We still have uh, a small group of people wanting to control everything. So. Right, that's true. It's interesting, you know, Trump has gone over and he's talked to the various leaders of the NATO nations and read them the Riot Act and said, listen, you have to pay. You have to pay up. You have to pay your share. Why do you continually rely on the United States to provide your defense, you've got to pay your fair share. And on the one hand, they look at they look at Putin as their greatest threat, and yet the Germans are very quick to make huge energy deals with Russia. It doesn't seem like they're that concerned about Russia, so why should the United States be so concerned about Russia? Yeah, uh, let me get off the, the beaten path here for just a second. The answer to that question is, there's a lot of scholars who have written and have researched and a lot of the reason for America's presence in the Middle East is to build a pipeline across the Middle East to Europe so they don't have to use Putin. And it just so happens to be this pipeline is going to go through all the countries and kingdoms that we've had involvement in. 
there was a large effort to get rid of uh, Assad in Syria. And my viewpoint is, I don't think Assad was the the boogeyman everybody made him out to be because he actually protected Christianity over there. Yes, yes, he did. And, you know, like like I said before, if you want to know who ISIS was, look who John McCain went to go meet when he was a senator. They called him moderate uh, rebels, but no, that was ISIS. And all Assad was trying to do was keep ISIS out of his country. So just to get back to the Putin thing, I guess they're just putting up with him for now, and they're hoping that they can build this pipeline across the Middle East. But I have to wonder if that will ever be done because it's going to probably cause World War III if they keep at this policy. More of my conversation with Clint Lacey on false flags when Conspiracy Unlimited continues. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the star chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier, and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me. And all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Clint Lacey, the author of A Beginner's Guide to False Flags, is here. Let's move on to the Korean conflict. No war was actually ever declared. This was considered a United Nations police action from 1950 to 1953. Just set the stage here and explain how uh, this war got started and why you believe it, too, was a false flag. Okay. Uh, Actually, this one's a little different. It's in there because it involved America. I mean, it was something we were got into. But I actually point the finger of blame on this one to South Korea. Now, probably the best description of what happened what started the war was from an article in Time magazine. It said on uh, June 25th, 1950, when North Korea tanks crossed the 38th parallel, the boundary with South Korea, Time's reporting from the following week reveals it took several days for the United States to realize the scope of what happened. American cil- civilians were act- evacuated as the Southern Army rallied to try and hold the line. The 38th parallel was, one State Department official admitted, an entirely arbitrary line chosen by the World War II victors in Potsdam with no consideration for the geographical, economical, or realities of the country, but it was the border nonetheless, and it had been crossed. So what I found, and it was from from, uh, some CIA reports, it said South Korean incursions, the Tiger Regiment, etc., into North Korea in 1949 led to contrary claims and into war. The cause of this war probably was covert action involving leaders of Taiwan, South Korea, and the U.S. through through its backing. John Foster Dulles has been mentioned as an organizer of the hostilities. After the unpublished hostilities in 1949, the communist powers were strongly backing North Korea. So we weren't 
the ones crossing a line with our army, but we were we were certainly you know giving them what they needed and uh, a wink and a nod to do it. But don't you think in some ways it was really a proxy war? It was really the first conflict of this new Cold War, and this was the United States fighting Russia and communist China through Korea. Yeah, that's correct. And China didn't get involved until later. I mean, we pretty much had the situation stabilized, and then China came into the picture and knocked us back, and we had to fight for every piece of ground after that. But then again, it's like I read, all this came about from the victors of World War II dividing up the countries. Who's going to get what? Yes. Which, incidentally, that is what led to World War II after World War I. Certainly, yes. The late Jim Mars, uh, who I um, got to know a little bit and, and had uh, interviewed countless times over the years, in his book, Ruled by Secrecy, he talks about the Korean conflict, and, and he points something out I don't know that I've ever heard anyone else mention, and I... The details now are a little hazy. It's been a number of years since I read the book, but it went something like this. South Korea and the the UN forces, the United Nations forces, were being directed under the, um, the Security Council, which was actually led by a Russian. So all the orders went through the UN security and, and through this particular uh, individual. He happened to be also the same individual who was commanding the, the, the Russian forces that were backing North Korea. So you had the same person in charge of both sides of the conflict. I mean, have you ever heard that? And is that even possible? Well, it's certainly possible, yeah. Uh, well, that makes me think of something that I've never thought of before. Well, I have, but not in this way until you said that. If there was never a World War II, would there have been a United Nations? Uh, well, a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. Because here in America, conservatives just disdain the United Nations. I can't stand the thought of them having a building on our soil whenever all they try to do is come up with these programs to, uh, you know, uh, subjugate my country. I think the UN's a bad thing, and I wish it wasn't here. It does challenge the sanctity of the nation state on many occasions, I would agree. But again, let me go back to the, um, the Korean Peninsula and ask you this. Had the North Koreans rolled over South Korea, because it ended up being basically a stalemate, nothing much changed. But imagine now the entire peninsula being a, essentially a giant prison camp. I mean, it's a horror show in North Korea. Uh, can't we at least say, oh, hey, yeah. we stopped that. We prevented that from happening. Well, that's true. But in another token, say uh, we look at all the migrants that are coming north from Central and South America. Well, you know, the official story is, well, their countries become so bad. Take Venezuela, for instance. Okay, they, and a lot of people want us to do something about it. But if you live in a country, isn't it your job to take your country back? I mean, who says we need to be the world's police force? Right. And I kind of approach it from that uh, from that angle. But uh, an interesting picture, and I, I'm sure you've seen it, is the nighttime picture from space looking at North Korea and South Korea. Yes, there's no light except. You, <laughs> yes, no light in North Korea. No electricity. Yeah. No electricity. Yeah, it's dark. South Korea, you see lights everywhere. North Korea, it's dark. Um, but also, there was another player in this uh, Korean War, and uh, it comes in the form of a weekly survey prepared by the CIA dated January 28, 1949, 
And it quotes North Korean propaganda stating that South Korean Prime Minister Lee Bong-suk was involved in an assassination of a North Korean official. The report read Southern terrorist in Heiju Lee Bong-suk's plot to assassinate important North Koreans by exploding a bomb on 19th January was nipped in the bud by the alert Republican police, but it claims in a January 24th broadcast. Lee is said to have been directly connected with the band of terrorist incendiaries and to have guided their operations. So what I wrote was considering the report is quoting a North Korean propaganda outlet. It's highly suspect. On the other hand, it does verify claims of South Korean incursion into North Korea during that time period. Yes. Additionally, another CIA weekly CIA weekly survey dated April 8, 1949, stated the first anniversary of the armed uprising on Cheju Island is observed by uh, Pinyon in an April 3rd commentary recapitulating American venality in Cheju. The U.S. is said to have suppressed the People's Committees to have shut off all communications with the mainland and to have robbed the islanders of their scanty food supply. So, uh, you know, that piece of information is showing some CIA involvement. Sure. And (laughs) certainly wouldn't put it past. But mostly South Korean involvement. It's almost like, you know, you ask, well, at least at least South Korea isn't starving like North Korea. But South Korea kind of started it with these incursions. And uh, I'm not a fool. North Korea probably had assassination plots going on for the South, too. No question. It's just one of those uh, powder keg areas that's just going to boil over someday, and it did. Right, right. Well, you know what? Life is messy, and and geopolitics is incredibly complicated and messy. And sometimes you have to to make the deal with the devil. Sometimes you have to pick winners and losers. But that doesn't change the fact that what you're you're writing about, these false flags, the, the origin of these conflicts is not always what we think. And I think that's the point. That's what bothers me the most about World War II. You know, you could say it was a just war, but at the same time, how just can a war be if you have to be lied into supporting them? That is a fair question. Absolutely. All right. We're going to wrap part two there and we'll pick it up again very soon. Clint Lacey, how do people get a hold of A Beginner's Guide to False Flags? Uh, You can go to Amazon and uh, type in the search bar Clint Lacey, or you can visit my website at foothillsmedia.net. And you can get a hold of me at foothillsmedia at yahoo.com. Excellent. All right. Talk soon. Uh, Thank you for having me on. Okay. Before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be right back to fill you in on what's coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited. This segment, sponsored by The Horrible Movie Podcast, available at iTunes and thehorriblemoviepodcast.com. Remember, just because it's from Hollywood doesn't mean it isn't horrible. Be sure to be listening Wednesday for part three of my ongoing series on false flags. The message was lost in translation between the Maddox and D.C., but even when they figured out what was going on, they wanted to go ahead and put this into motion because, let's face it, a lot of these factors that killed JFK, one of them was the military-industrial complex. So there was a lot of money to be made in this war. And Lyndon Johnson had a real strong connection to Kellogg's Brown Root, which was a construction company. 
and it just so happens it had all the government contracts to go in and build up South Vietnam. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>